bum bum bottom 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 bum
we do? Are we done with the sweet, sweet plugs? Yeah, does that feel incredibly scripted and not at all like our usual banter? We did other stuff. We read some amazing comics. I nearly took my pinky finger off. Oh, avocado deep, hands. <laughs> I don't technically have avocado hands because avocado hand generally is a slice between the thumb and the forefinger of people who are trying to deep hit an avocado while in their hand. I didn't do that. I was trying to deep hit an avocado with kind of a re 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 stabbing motion. And yeah. uh, uh, Lisa took her knife to the bone. We did go <laughs> to the emergency room. She did get uh, her finger glued up. The doctors did realize that maybe gluing it was a mistake because when we got back home, she started to spring I was bleeding everywhere. But I also uh, didn't, uh, I went right, I didn't elevate my hand or rest. I went right back to like cooking and playing piano. I need to be told the most <laughs> obvious things like, hey, you just sliced your hand open. Why not give Take a break. I've never been to the ER twice in one day. And so it was really cool to see how the second doctor had the exact opposite opinion of the first doctor and seemed really judgmental of the first doctor. Well, I'm team second doctor because first, the first doctor decided to do the glue, which yeah. I don't think that that was the right move personally, even though I won't have a scar, according to her. So that's that's OK. We'll Not, see. We'll see. You know, my hand vanity. But scars bring character and you have scars already all over your face. <laughs> Hurtful. Well you, well, you got that one on your lip. Anyway. That's that's true. I uh, I when I was two, I apparently hit a table. And then I also have a scar on my forehead from when I jumped off the swing. Yeah. And the summer before kindergarten. And you're all the more beautiful for it. I also have facial scars. Brad actually covered in teeny tiny scars because when he was three years old he ran through a sliding door uh no the front door which was a glass door uh you know how like uh houses have the wooden door and then they have that exterior oh, yeah. glass door i ran through that glass door when i was three and yes i am covered in scars i'm a regular jigsaw or yeah a deadpool or i'm not deadpool <laughs> I've no hamburger face. Oh. And not that there's anything wrong with hamburger faces. We accept all faces here <laughs> at the CBCC podcast. Now, you're still like Brad and Lisa. You left us hanging with Rogan Gambit. Guys, we're back to them. Chill. And we are so <laughs> damn excited to be back with these two. As you heard in the intro, this week's episode is focusing on the Gambit four-issue miniseries and the Rogue four-issue miniseries written by Howard Mackey and published in 1993 to 1995, and boy, are they deliciously 90s. They are very 90s. What's his hair doing? I don't even know. <laughs> Neither of us had ever read these books before, but coming off the early 90s comics that we kicked off our Rogue and Remy conversation with, I was super pumped to dive in. Yeah, you know, like a big chunk of Gambit's early appeal, uh, somewhat like Wolverine, was his mysterious past. Uh, we saw a little of that explored in the Jim Lee issues that we talked about uh, when the X-Men traveled to New Orleans to square off with Ghost Rider, the Thieves Guild, and the Brood. That's when we learned that Remy had previously been married to Belladonna. What? And then she was unceremoniously killed off. Oh, no! Uh, not so fast. Uh, enter Howard Mackey, uh, who with these two minis, which I'm calling the Mackey minis. I like that. Uh, really was given the opportunity to define Gambit's origin and expose readers to the weird, wild world of the Thieves Guild. Now, Mackey, he had written a few comics for DC, including a single issue of Speed Demon in 1998. 
he's primarily known as a Marvel guy. Um, he's most famous for being the co-creator of the Danny Ketch version of Ghost Rider, which was freaking huge in the 90s. Uh, while that character has had some success in recent years, Nicolas Cage, how you doing? Uh, <laughs> it's hard to explain to contemporary readers just how damn popular the Danny Ketch Ghost Rider character was. All you need to do is go back to those early Jim Lee uh, adjectiveless X-Men books and read its crossover with Danny Ketch Ghost Rider. Honestly, like, what the hell is Ghost Rider doing with those characters? Uh, but Ghost Rider cameoed in every series, from Spider-Man to The Punisher. He even took down Galactus in the Fantastic Four 90s cartoon. So freaking weird. Um, you know, and, and Mackie, he also wrote a bunch of X-Factor in the 90s and its follow-up title Mutant X. But he's most known for in the X-World, probably for these two miniseries, Gambit and Rogue. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of our conversation, we're going to need uh, some help. And as we did last time, we're using the book Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love by Drs. Gottman and Abrams. Uh, Lisa, how is this all going to work? The conceit of Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, is that a couple will take an hour out of their week for eight weeks to go on these prescribed dates with prescribed conversation topics outlined in each chapter as a means of establishing a lasting, successful relationship. Successful meaning till death do us part. <laughs> we understand that that is not everyone's goal or best life to have one partner over multiple decades until one or both of you kick... But it is our goal as a married couple and the goal of this book. I can't resist a stop by the concession stand. Live your best life, people. Oh, man, that's so romantic. <laughs> Last full episode, I talked primarily about Dr. John Gottman and his many accomplishments in the field of psychological research relating to love and marriage stability. And I promised that this episode, we would talk primarily about Julie Schwartz Gottman, we are equal opportunity diminishers, remember? She is also a psychologist, researcher, speaker, and author and co-founder of the Gottman Institute. The focus of her early career was working with low-income clients by setting up counseling centers and giving outpatient psychiatric care to rape and incest victims, combat veterans, drug addicts, schizophrenics, and impoverished people with serious mental illness. In the 1980s, she was the first to study the effects of being raised by a lesbian versus heterosexual mother by studying adult children of lesbian parents. At that time, it was judicial common practice to remove children from the home of their lesbian mothers for their own well-being. Of course, Dr. Schwartz-Gottman found that there was no significant differences in sexual orientation, gender identity, or social adjustment between daughters either raised by lesbian or heterosexual mothers. As a result of this research, she has served as an expert witness in lesbian mothers' court custody disputes, and her practice includes seeing women and men of any sexual orientation. So yeah, she's a pioneer and a hero and currently the president of the Gottman Institute. Amazing lady. In the 80s, so cool. When we last talked eight dates, we learned that the number one predictor of marriage stability was how a couple talked about their relationship as a narrative. Happy couples who stay together, speak about each other with admiration, think of themselves as a unit, are optimistic about their future and glorify their struggles. Unhappy couples speak more negatively about each other, express pessimism or doubts, and are less eager or exhausted by telling their story. 
a happy couple and an unhappy couple can have the exact same issues, but how they tell their stories is what determines how they'll function as a couple and how they'll stay together. Sure. Once that negative switch has been flipped, it is hard to unflip. Yeah, we've talked about narratives in the past. And we talked a lot about Rogue and Gambit's contrasting narratives in those 90s X-Men comics because of Rogue's experience with Cody and um, feeling like by being in a romantic relationship with someone, she is going to hurt them. Right, right. Love means pain, and I can't ever give anyone love because I can't ever give anyone pain. Exactly. And Gambit tries his hardest to stay optimistic and continue to woo her. He likes a challenge. But she does not trust him to be taking that chance for himself. And we saw in X-Men number 24, when they went on that first successful date, that he finally started to understand her point of view, or at least let her know that he's not just a scallywag, that he is not just... um, uh, uh, pressuring her because that's what a and a she's dude not he's does. not he's not in it for purely a physical relationship, yeah, right, right? Which is what she is afraid yeah. of. And so, like X Men twenty four, tremendous growth. And I feel like when we start talking about these Mackie minis, we have to like redo that growth a little bit. Yeah, and um, we they're facing some of their like base issues head on. Yeah, but I do think it's kind of like. Like, one step forward, two steps back. Yeah, comics. What are you going to do? In each of the eight dates, the Gottmans provide open-ended questions on relationships' big topics, such as trust and commitment, sex and intimacy, growth and spirituality. And if you've listened to our mini-eps, you've heard Brad and I tackle some of these questions for ourselves and for Rogan Gambit. But have we been communicating most effectively? As part of gearing up to go on our eight dates the book provides the four skills of an intimate conversation. So, so Brad, let's check in. Let's mm. see if we've got these skills. Skill number one, put into words what you're feeling, then talk about why you're having those feelings. I guess it's supposed to keep you from blaming the other person. You start the conversation by, I am feeling hurt, and this is the reason I'm feeling hurt. Cause and effect. Rather than going in like, you forgot to... <laughs> Uh, clean my oatmeal pot. Now I can't have oatmeal in the morning. That is a problem. That is occasional an issue we have in the Gullickson household. Skill number two. Ask your partner open-ended questions during intimate conversation. Which is, uh, we don't even have to come up with questions because they're providing the questions. So that's handy. Nice. Thank you, Gottman and Abrams. But I do think that it's a good skill to have, like if you're searching for um, a conversation topic, Being able to think about, hey, uh, like there was one I asked you a little while ago, like, what is your idea of a perfect day? Oh, right, right, right. And that that uh, yielded some fruitful conversation when we were having our Valentine's Day dinner. Go to the comic book store. At Sushi Yoshi. Buy some comics. That's what we did, actually. Maybe get an action figure or two. (laughs) Uh, Go to the movies. Uh, Watch Fantasy Island. It's terrible, but enjoy the experience anyway. Go have sushi together. But before we do that, let's go to another bookstore. Perfect day. Yeah, that was the day we actually had. It was really beautiful. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day, belated. Skill number three, make exploratory statements to help open up your partner's feelings and needs during an intimate conversation. So when your partner drops a bomb like, 
I like to go to two bookstores in a day. <laughs> you might ask a question like, hey, why a second bookstore? Because one was a comic book store and the other was a bookstore Obvious. that also had comics. We know everything about each other. Why are we even having intimate conversations? You know that you're lucky that you had a two bookstore day when the real perfect day is a three bookstore day. That is that is the truth. That is real. Because you because you got to go to like a used bookstore. Yeah. Because you want cheap books. Yeah. Yeah. Skill number four, express tolerance Empathy and understanding towards your partner during an intimate conversation. I guess the most important thing about expressing tolerance, empathy, and understanding is that you're not trying to resolve anything or change anything about the other person. You're just saying, like, if, for example, one of my favorite things to say when I'm having fifis is like, oh, I feel like such a schlub. Yeah, right, right, right. And then if Brad was like, well, why don't you just get off your butt and get something done. Like, that would hurt my feelings. But yeah. I think that if Brad was like, um, I I know what it feels like to feel schlubby sometimes, that would make me feel a lot I better. I understand that experience, but you look beautiful. Oh, thank you, my love. I don't know. I think it's it's uh, it's empathy, right? We talk like we talk about empathy a lot. Uh, it's just relating and understanding another human being. And you're never going to be able to change your partner uh, in any way you or any person or any person you can only change yourself that's right that's right now that we've got our four basic skills of intimate conversation we now need to get into the art of listening eight dates give us a bulleted list yeah are you ready for it give it to me bullet number one i shouldn't do numbers because i'm 100 going to lose count um <laughs> Maybe I should just make like a bullet sa- sound effect. Like, patow, patow. Be attentive. <laughs> <laughs> no smartphones. Lean forward. Make eye contact and don't interrupt. I've actually heard, I think this was a Dr. Stan Tatkin tip, is that if you're fighting, it's important to purposefully make eye contact because eye contact creates greater empathy. It's hard to be hurtful to someone if you're, locked in <laughs> i would be like lisa's giving me the serial killer stare <laughs> also don't interrupt is hard for me because sometimes i show that as a sign for sign of listening <laughs> well and we're huge interrupters both of us we love interrupting each other yeah we do uh, we're working on it <laughs> patow be present don't assume what your partner is going to say next and avoid thinking about what you're going to say next this is something that both annoys me and I'm not good at. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there is nothing worse than um, being interrupted by someone who's finishing your sentence and they finish it wrong. My dad <laughs> is so terrible about that. He loves to. Not many people are actually good at it because <laughs> I also try to do that with you and you go like, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a mind reader. I'm not a mind reader. But when I'm in a conversation and uh, things are kind of ping-ponging back and forth, I do, like, try to have a few quips in the chamber, (laughs) which does distract me from what the other person is saying. Sure. Patow! Ask questions, keeping in mind that a conversation isn't an interrogation. Sometimes I think people throw things out as a conversation starter, 
And if you're not listening properly, you might not pick up on that. Yeah, well, we've experienced that in recording sessions. We have. (laughs) You know, because I'll be so focused on the sound levels of an episode. Yeah, working on the audio. And then I'll throw a question to you, and then you give uh... me a blank look. (laughs) This is complicated. Patow! Tune in. Don't minimize or fix feelings. You don't have to make your partner feel better or try to cheer them up. Just yesterday, Brad and I had the conversation of Brad was in a little bit of a grump. Yeah, it happens. And I was like, and he and when he gets grumpy, Gus, he has a grumpy Gus voice. And <laughs> I had like I had to tell him like, you know, when you're using crabby voice, I can't tell if it's a just general crabby voice or a crabby at Lisa voice. But maybe I should just let it go and not make everything about me. Maybe I should just be like, oh, Brad's crabby. Let's give him some space. It's a two-way street. Like, when you're crabby, when I get into a grump mood, uh, that doesn't give me permission to take a dump on you. Right. But some. Uh, but I also understand if you don't want to talk about it. I don't understand because I always want to talk about it. But I hear you when you say you don't want to talk and about I'm it. And I'm glad you needled me a little bit so that I could expose my frustrations to you and I could move beyond them. And then I could go the rest of my evening guilt-free. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Witness. Be there for your partner and repeat back what your partner is saying in their own words. Validation. I think this is all something you hear in counseling conversations a lot and can be dismissed as corny. But sometimes I feel like I have to say what my partner is saying back to them just to see if I actually understand. Can I do the next patow? Do it. Patow! Avoid judgment! Don't be critical or give advice unless solicited. Ooh, a challenge. Another challenge. (laughs) It isn't about getting on the same side of every issue. Yeah, that's something that's also hard because every conversation where a person's on the other side feels like, well, you're... Like, if you want to say your own side, it's always going to sound like you're trying to be persuasive, don't you think? Persuasive or accusatory, uh, you you know, like... Depending on the context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's... And it's easy to fall into. Yeah. I was having dinner with my friend Kelly. This was weeks back, but I still carry this experience in my heart because we were on opposite sides of the rise of Skywalker. Oh, no. We can't... We're not ready to break that topic in. Because I come from the pro-Last Jedi camp. As do I. And she was strongly in the anti-Last Jedi camp. I don't understand it. How can you not like Rose? I kept apologizing for expressing my opposite opinion because I would use my serious voice when I was going like, well, what about that kiss at the end? That was just weird and gratuitous. But then I would... In Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, in Rise of Skywalker. And then I would have to... I felt like I had to, and she was like, stop apologizing to me. We're not trying to change each other's minds, but I have that guilt of when my passion comes out about movies or comic books. If somebody contradicts your uh, opinion on a film or a comic book, you let them have it both barrels. I do. And, (laughs) but it's because I'm defensive. Yeah. yeah, And that's not good. I do something similar. I don't think I, I, I'm a little bit more of like uh, if somebody doesn't like something that I like, I I'm uh, immediately defensive. Go like, well, I kind of like it. I don't. Know. Brad will straight up lie to a person. I don't. I yes, don't. you do. Ugh. You do. When someone says that they like a terrible movie, you'll be like, it's great. Well, I, 
Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily that is what I do. I don't want to engage in those Rise of Skywalker, Last Jedi conversations. So whatever side they're on, I just go like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless they're saying something heinously racist. uh, (laughs) And Kelly wasn't saying anything racist. Right. She's a lovely person. But but, but like most times I'm not in it to have that conversation and that debate uh, with especially folks that are not necessarily in my passion circles. But... But Kelly and I were having an yes. intimate conversation. Yes. We were out to dinner. I, I just think that um, I have to avoid judgment of others in conversation, but I also have to avoid judgment of myself in conversation. Right, right. We're all allowed to have different opinions, and we should remember that. Uh, and you, listeners, should remember that, because I don't want you to abandon us because you think our Star Wars opinions are dumb. Oh. <laughs> do, this is our last Patel. Do you want to do it together? Oh, yeah, yeah. Patel! Magnify acceptance. I love this one. Work to accept your partner as they are. Cherish and build gratitude. We know that my love language is words of affirmation. I need them all of the time. I'm constantly jonesing for praise. And I think that just finding opportunities to say, I love this about you, our differences... Don't detract from the things I love about you. They enhance them. I think that that stuff is important to say and always adds to the intimacy of a conversation. What do you think, Brad? I 100% agree with you on that one. Yeah, nice. Married. It's so great. After our discussion of these Mackie minis, Brad and I are going to tackle another one of eight dates open-ended questions. This one is going to be from the fun and adventure chapter. I thought that was appropriate for Rogue and Gambit. Yep, for sure. Because Gambit's into fun, and they're both into adventure. I don't know if Rogue is into fun. She's occasionally into fun. Oh, uh, no, Rogue's into fun. Maybe maybe not so much in these two minis. She's, a, she's very much into contextual fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Appropriate contextual fun. As we discuss our assigned reading, I think we should keep our minds tuned to if Rogue and Remy could benefit from the four skills of an intimate conversation and the art of listening. Or are their narratives just too contrary for them to have a happily ever after? We'll find out here. That we will. But let's get into the books themselves. Yeah, we're talking about the two Mackie minis. Uh, Gambit, written by Mackie, penciled by Lee Weeks, inked by Klaus Jensen, colored by Steve uh, Buccioletto, lettered by Richard Starkings, and published in December of 1993 to March of 1994. Plus, Rogue, written by Mackie, penciled by Mike, I can never say his name right. Waringo. Waringo, with assists from Jason Gorder, inked by Terry Austin and Jason Gorder, colored by Dana Mooreshead, uh, Mike Thomas, and Digital Chameleon, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comic Craft, and published between January and April of 1995. Uh, this is a lot of comics, guys, and we could spend the rest of this episode going through these two books panel by panel. Let's do it! No! Oh, no, man! We're not going to do that, Lisa. That's my favorite thing! No, no. We'll just give you the basic gist of both plots in two paragraphs, courtesy of Goodreads. Thank you, Goodreads. So here's Gambit. The time of the tithing has come again. The time of both thieves and assistants to pay tribute to the immortal Chandra. The time for the guilds to receive their ancient birthrights, the assassin's gift of power, the thieves' elixir of life. That's Gambit. Here's Rogue. Rogue visits her first boyfriend, who she put into a coma when her powers first arose. Little does she know that Belladonna has 
dastardly plans for the two of them. That's it. <laughs> All right. Pretty simple. Not too complicated. Thanks, Goodreads. Oh, my goodness. That rogue paragraph is the worst. Could be interpreted anyway. <laughs> That's pretty rude that she just throws a dude into a coma yep, on a whim. Yep, yep. Cody, Cody, Cody. Let's get into the conversation, Lisa, discussion time. Yes. We open on New Orleans. Grab your babies, Creole mothers. The time of tithing is here. Dreadful, dreadful, scary stuff. But before we can get to any of that, we're back at the X-Mansion in the Danger Room. I don't know how much we'll end up actually talking about the Tithe Collector, but (laughs) I do not understand what his job is. I know that he is in charge of distributing, I guess, the elixir, but Tithe Collector implies some kind of collecting of a tithe. And he never, like, is the tithe the, uh, the death of the people who are like being destroyed by the, by the elixir? Like, what is the tithe? Uh, I don't know if I could actually answer that question. I think somebody I just... Mean, he's basically just a henchman for Chandra and the externals. I think somebody came up with a cool name and then was like, I don't know what to do with this. Well, uh, you know, he, <laughs> Howard Mackey, uh, we were talking about this uh, while we were on our stroll, but it's clear that Howard Mackey doesn't know much about New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Like... He literally only, he knows as much as I do. I don't know anything about New Orleans. I've never been. I know there's a French Quarter. So does Mr. Mackey. Yeah. And that's about it. So, like, either they're going to the French Quarter or they're going somewhere under the French Quarter or they're going somewhere around the French Quarter. (laughs) He couldn't look up one other area in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. I respect the the lack of research. He's a very busy man. <laughs> I just look at Wikipedia. Who am I? Yeah, but let's let's talk about the Danger Room sequence that opens this issue uh, because it is, like, I think a pretty good primer for where Rogue and Gambit are in their relationship at this point in time. Right. So they're in the Danger Room. Araro and Logan are at the controls and Rogue and Gambit is trying to get Rogue to like loosen up. And he's going like, hey, it's, it's fun. It's a game. And she's like, it is no game. And he replies, oh, you're too serious. Life is a game. And if you give me the time and the opportunity, I'll show you. And then um, there are some incoming missiles. Logan is like, let's write it out. And Aurora's like, we got to turn the simulation off. Um, But at the last minute, Rogue actually dives and pushes Gambit out of the way. But somehow, when the dust clears, Gambit's on top, which I don't understand. Like, if I was tackling someone to push them out of the way of missiles, I would think, unless they kind of tumble rolled, or I think, after the smoke, he just crawled on top. Gambit goes to say, now isn't this a cozy little tete-a-tete? Love to stay here all day, but it'll have to be another time. We got company. And that's the intruder. There's an intruder, Henri, coming over. And um, uh, Rogue has a moment of goo-goo eyes, but when he leaves, she's so frustrated that she punches the danger room floor, denting the floor. So she's clearly very upset. Yeah. This issue of Gambit taking life like a game, having a good time, trying to treat things like they don't matter. And Rogue going like, we have to take this seriously. This is our training. This is a matter of life and death. To you, do you feel like this 
represents a fundamental difference that they well, won't meet eye to eye on? I think this tracks with their dynamic set up in those early Jim Lee issues, right? Yeah. Like, Gambit is the, the free-willing, you know, like, eh, it's no big deal, let's have some fun. You know, his weapon is a deck of cards, right? Right. Like, fighting for him is a blast. Fighting for him is, like, his greatest passion and his greatest joy. Uh, and, and that's why he's like, Rogue, you need to, like, um, you know, not worry so much. I know you have some history where you put a boy in a coma. <laughs> it's no big deal. You say that your powers uh, get in the way of your relationships, but I'm willing to take it because danger is my game. And Rogue is used to having to measure her powers and restrain herself constantly. She's kind of like um, the Dark Phoenix. She's kind of like Jean Grey, where like she can't use her full powers all of the time because she will just be crushing people right and left. So she's right. constantly having to use caution and fight lightly because she, not every battle is to the death. Yeah, she is an overpowered mutant. I mean, she could easily take on... Uh, the, the enemies without the X-Men. Like, in any scenario, I always wonder, like, uh, Rogue doesn't need Gambit to help her out in this situation. She really doesn't. She, she could decimate these dudes, right? Yeah. Uh, now, that makes it hard to write, and so writers are forced to lean into her fear over her powers. I think that is cleared up later on, uh, several years from now. Oh, really? But at this point... Um, you know, that that's like her shtick. Her shtick is being sheepish. Yeah. And it's and cautious. Oh, it's only as annoying as the writer makes it. I think that's Rogue, what I'm saying. Rogue is a character with tremendous potential. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it's constantly being mishandled. I think because she, by necessity, by being an X-Men, has to be part of the team where she's she doesn't actually need a team. Neither does Jean Grey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Team Rogue. Mm-hmm. Gambit's cool, though. He is. I like his hair. But he needs help. <laughs> he does need help. He does need He needs help. a hand. <laughs> he does need a hand. And he shouldn't be on top of that scene. <laughs> no, because just physics. Yeah. <laughs> but what I find interesting is the moment that she bangs the floor and dents the floor. What is she frustrated about? Who is she frustrated with? I think she's frustrated at herself and what Gambit does to her. I think so too. She she feels like her passion is another thing that she has to keep under control and it, it's something that she has a hard time reining in when she's around Remy. Yeah. But like all X-Men stories, when she gets to this point, when characters get to this point, uh, an interloper uh, appears and it is uh, Remy's brother, Henri. Yes. Uh, I would say Henry, but you said Henri earlier, and I'll, I'll stick with your pronunciation. He's French. He's French. Uh, so he appears, he's being pursued, he is killed. Uh, a, a by bolt, members of the Assassin's by, Guild. By members of the Assassin's Guild, a bolt goes into his chest, and Gambit has to go on the run. He has to return to New Orleans, he has to re-team with his Thieves' Guild, he's got to figure out what's going on down there. And Rogue is left to hang with Wolverine on a balcony. Yeah, she offered to come along, and he was like, this is family business, you're not invited. Yeah, you're not wanted. <laughs> so she's feeling super bummed out and left out, and so she goes to have a little balcony time with Logan, who seems to be the most sympathetic when it comes to 
Rogue and Gambit and the trouble they're having establishing a relationship. And that surprised you? I don't know if it necessarily surprised me. Logan and Remy have so much in common in the first place. True. They both have these mysterious pasts. They both come across a little careless and carefree. Like they, they both maintain uh, some emotional detachment. I think that Logan sees a lot of himself in Gambit. Yeah, and Logan has also had many uh, loves lost, right? Right, um, and, and he does refer to that. So when Wolverine and Rogue are on the balcony, Wolverine is trying to comfort her, and she says out loud, I love him, Wolverine. Yeah. I don't know if this is the first time she's said that. It's the first time we've encountered it in this uh, reread. And Wolverine is like, yeah, duh. We're not we're not blind. You don't need superpowers to tell that you guys are madly crushing on each other. But he assures her that it was the right thing to do to let him go alone and take care of his own business. But then he says this. But after tonight, don't let him be alone again. There's something between you two. Mariko and I had the same. But don't wait until conditions are perfect. Because with the likes of us, they never are. Brad, can you give us a little background information about Logan and Mariko? Sure, absolutely. For a long time, uh, Mariko Yoshida was the romantic interest uh, to Logan. Uh, she appeared in a lot of comic books. Uh, it started off as a flirtation after like Wolverine came back from the Savage Land and hung out with her family. Uh, there was some Yakuza shenanigans. She was betrothed to this awful gang leader, uh, and there was some domestic abuse uh, involved. Logan came to her rescue. Uh, she was poisoned by, um, you know, like uh, uh, that Simpsons episode where they, they don't cut the blowfish right. Oh, you know, yeah, Fugu. Fugu, yeah. She was poisoned by uh, the consummation of a... Consummation? The consumption <laughs> of uh, a blowfish. Don't go to bed with those Fugu. Don't, don't go to don't bed with Don't blow a blowfish. Don't That's blow what, a blowfish. <laughs> That's always good advice. <laughs> she she was poisoned, and she was dying, and, but she didn't want to die in this agony, and so she actually asked Wolverine to snuff her out, and he did. He killed oh, her. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, of course, that sent him into one of his, you know, preserved rages uh and he went you know on a vengeance quest uh because of that there was some shenanigans with her soul i didn't really read that era of x-men comics but i believe she was resurrected magically for a brief period uh she even appears a little bit in the uh, old man logan storylines um but like the the Mariko we're talking about here is the one that he has murdered. Okay, or, so yeah, I agree, uh, Logan. The timing was never right for you because either <laughs> you were <laughs> separate, or she was betrothed, or you were murdering her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not murdering her. Uh, Euthanizing. Know, uh, yeah, relieving her of her pain. Yeah. Yeah. In the most Wolverine fashion, though, because you know. Pop claws right in her belly. Okay, well, I think that that gives him license to give all of the relationship advice in the world. Sure, Thanks, sure. Logan. Do we think that Logan is giving her good advice? Like, after, okay, he has to go do this thing and let him do that, but from then on, give him no space. Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't necessarily know if I think that's the right thing to, for them, but, you know, 
if you're going to learn whether or not you're going to work as a couple, you have to be a couple. Yeah. And so, look, you're killing yourself with these emotions, this unrequited love. Uh, how about you requite that stuff? And uh, let's see if you guys are, are meant for each other. So, I, yeah, I is it the right advice? Yeah, I've just, yeah, I've convinced myself. Yes, it's way good to go, advice. Logan. Yeah, way to go, Logan. I, w- I think you're right. I, I wasn't necessarily seeing it that way in the first place. I was like, I think that when you're in a relationship, you have to listen to people. And if they're saying, like, I don't need you right now, you have to take them at their word and give them space. I agree with that, but they're not in a relationship. They're not. They're in, like, really the flirty, flirty stage, and she is... In knots over it. Yeah, she's saying the L word to Logan, all right? And uh, not many people confess to Logan and say that, uh, I love this dude, Logan. Uh, so Logan, uh, you know, he, he, he respects that and he wants to comfort her the way that he wished somebody had comforted him. And it's awful when you have like sexual tension in the workplace, like everybody around Rogan Gambit must be so over it at this point. Yeah. Like either (laughs) do it or don't do it. I almost, well, either poop or get off the pot, but that's not a nice thing to say. Not when sex is concerned. (laughs) Yeah. It's not sanitary. Oh my god. Meanwhile, Gambit is pursuing the assassins that killed his killed his brother and he follows them to Salem, which is just the next town and He does not get far. He does not get far. And they <laughs> and they scuffle. It's actually an ambush. They scuffle. They eventually leave via portal and they're being led by Julian, who happens to be Belladonna's brother. And Julian says, I've got a job to do, thief, for my sister. Belladonna almost died because of you, but I've kept her alive. Yeah, and then Gambit's like, what, 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 Belladonna? He's like, what? Alive? We saw him die in the 90s, in our last episode. I know, how can she be alive? That's right. So he goes back to the X-Mansion and... He gives them the lowdown, and he's like, I've got to go to New Orleans. And Wolverine is like, I'll come. And he's like, no, this is a family thing. And Professor X does the thing of like, well, you know, we're also your family. We're, we're there for you. And he's then like, blah, Ro- blah, 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 no. <laughs> well, he's, um, Rogue comes forward and says, he won't be traveling alone, Professor. I'll be with him all the way. And Gambit initially is like, no, you're not coming. And she says, you think you're all, ooh, excuse me. Let me put on my twang. You think y'all are man enough to stop me. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to read that sugar talk. It is, um, especially when I uh, copy it, I miscopy it into my notes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so Rogue is the boss there. Yeah, and he says, sometimes, someday you'll find out how much of a man I am, Cherie, or Cher. And until then, he's like, now, this has stuff to do with my wife. This has stuff to do with my family. You're, you might learn things that you do not want to learn. And and that's how the issue ends. Sure. And that we, we need to talk about how uh, he allows, quote unquote, Rogue to join him and what effect that has on their journey down there. First, but, I want to know, like, what does Rogue think that she's in for? Does she think that if she goes with him, they're going to be equal partners in this quest or that he is going to actually rely on her in this conflict 
Or is she just going so that she can get a glimpse into his past? Because it's something, excuse me if this is a pun, but he keeps his cards close to his chest when it comes to his life in New Orleans. And I think that she's looking for, first, who doesn't want to know about her uh, one significant other's exes and why they worked or didn't work? Who doesn't want to know that? And I think that she's looking for the key that unlocks who Gambit is underneath all of this. Of course. Um, you know, posturing and, and carefree fakery. We've talked about this on many episodes, communication, right? Like if you are going to work as a couple, uh, one of those individuals can't have some secret dodgy past that the other one is not at all aware of. You cannot be hiding half of yourself from your lover. Yes. And Rogue knows that. Rogue needs to uncover these dirty little secrets of Gambit. And she and doesn't care how. And I think that that is, plays into what happens when she's left alone with Belladonna. Yeah. That she is so hungry for information about Gambit that she makes some poor decisions. Because she needs to know if she can live with those secrets. Are those secrets truly heinous? Is his past villainous? Um, or is it something that I can live with in a partner? But also, it's up to Gambit how his past is revealed to her. And it's... Like Dan Savage says, it's a relationship, not a deposition. So he gets to be in charge of how this information comes out. And I think that she pays a price for going on this trip. Oh, for sure. <laughs> All right. So that's issue one. Oh, my goodness. We're going to have to get through the rest of these. Uh, what is it? Uh, seven Expeditiously. Issues? We're going to have to do this pretty quickly. Yeah. But, like, what's the big thing in issue number two? It's Belladonna, right? Right. She is alive. She is. Gambit puts eyes to her face. He creepily crawls into her bedroom window. And she's bedridden. Yes, yeah, she's unconscious. And he is shocked. He is rocked. He takes her hand and wails, Belladonna, my wife, my love. Yeah, splash page, yeah. right? And then here comes Julian and his goons. Big fight breaks out. Uh, punching, punching, punching. Rogue appears to save the day. And what does Gambit say? Gambit's like, Rogue, ma chérie, I asked you to stay out of this. <laughs> and she's like, well, asking isn't getting. And then punchy, punchy, punchy. <laughs> and, um, oh, she says, sides, there seems to be more enough of this here little game for the both of us. Gambit replies, this is no game. So now the their roles, roles are, reversed. are reversed. So to me, like if I was rogue, I would be incredibly hurt because Gambit has been escaping his past and everything that he does that doesn't have anything to do with the Thieves Guild is a game, but now all of a sudden that it has to do with this? It's serious. Now all of a sudden it's real yeah, life. Yeah. Oh, you mean Gambit's self-centered? It's, it's not an issue of self-centered. It's an issue of outside of New Orleans, 
it is not real life to him. Outside of New Orleans, what they do, do does not matter. It's mm. just playful. Interesting. I, yeah, I guess I do agree with that. I do agree with that because uh, the last place he wants to be ever is in New Orleans, it seems, because it brings up all real emotions. And outside of New Orleans, that's where his persona really takes over. Do you think Rogue is showing signs of listening, going like, I hear what you say when that fighting is a game? Or are they all just talking to talk and not actually saying anything? Well, they are in the middle of a big old brawl, Lisa. It's hard to like have a proper conversation in a brawl, although but, it does happen all the time in comics and is essential to comic books. But it goes back to the issue of their main conversation is banter, and has less to do with the truth and more to do with the back out, and forth out talking the other person. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Quips. So, quips. So maybe Gambit never really meant that life's a game because all that talk that was in the danger room outside of New Orleans was just banter, was just shtick, was just BS. Right. And because every conversation they have is so surface level because they're hiding so much. So. As much time as they spent together, they never actually learn anything about each other. I, I think that's what I was saying earlier is like you, you cannot interact with another person unless it's all out there. And that goes back to what we were saying all the way at the start of this episode when you were accusing me of being a liar uh, and not telling people my true opinions about films. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, is that like if this person doesn't really know me, that. I'm not going to give them my full Rise of Skywalker uh, opinion because we're just having a casual bit of banter before I go to McDonald's and, and continue on with my day or whatever. And I'm one of those people where it's just like... Every conversation is real. But I, I have to share my truth. Yeah. I feel weird not sharing my truth. You still come out sounding better than me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, because maybe it's hurtful to people. Maybe I'm just... Some, sometimes it is, poor Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Gambit gets a hold of Belladonna's body. He takes her back to his old place, the house that he built for the two of them to, to live settle happily down. ever after. Yeah. Rogue agrees to look after her body while he goes and into the tithing ceremony and sees Jean-Luc. And Jean-Luc uh, reveals that there is an elixir of life that could save Belladonna, but Jean-Luc does not want to give that elixir to Gambit, uh, effectively orphaning him once again. Yeah, he's heartbroken because Jean-Luc was like a father to him, found him in the streets as a pickpocket and took him under his wing, but now he feels like he can no longer trust Jean-Luc. His brother Henri is dead, and so he he feels like he doesn't have a family anymore. And Rogue is like, well, you do have a family because you have us, you have the X-Men. He's not impressed with that. He's heartbroken. He leaves and Rogue is left alone with an unconscious Belladonna. And she starts, her wheel starts turning. She starts obsessing and she uh, looks at her and says like, so tell me, Belladonna, are you the dream of a thief? Ugh. And what does she do? She doesn't do that yet, but the idea is brewing in the back of her mind. She does have access to Belladonna's secrets. It, all it does is take the slip of a glove, a little touchity touch, and she can have all of the answers that she wants. Right, so she stops herself, but the reader knows, like, okay, this has got to happen at some point. Her, 
her willpower is going to break down. Oh, yeah. What I'm wondering is what does Gambit think is going to happen? When he leaves them alone? No, when Belladonna is to full health. Let's say Belladonna gets the elixir and is A-okay. Do you think he's going to move back to New Orleans? Uh, I don't think Gambit is thinking in future. I think he is in the present. I think he realizes that the woman that he was married to, the woman that he one time loved, that he probably still loves, uh, there's a possibility that she can be brought back to full health and it's his mission to make that happen. I think it's I, a matter of honor and duty. He yeah. goes like, well, this is my job. But he's not a five-year plan guy. Right, right that's true. Yeah. So what does that mean? He, he can't even think about that. He's got to make this happen and then he can worry about that later. Well, that's going to leave Rogue feeling extremely insecure about their future. Yes, 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 uh, yes, 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 yes. But they can't worry about that stuff because they've got the externals, these immortal mutants who are apparently puppet masters of both the Assassin's Guild and the Thieves Guild, and they're manipulating everything. Kondra, she's another diabolical lady waiting in the wings. Kondra's entire motivation is that she has eternal life and she's bored. You see this a lot in vampire fiction. Oh, I also, I was thinking like Greek gods. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When they get, Olympus. Exactly. They, they get bored and they start meddling. But the Thieves' Guild and the Assassins' Guild are somewhat aware, which is why they have their truce where the Assassin's Guild gets their powers from Kondra and the Thieves' Guild get the elixir from Contra, and that's the standing agreement. But of course, now everybody's selfish and everybody wants what the other guild has. Yeah, sure. So Gambit leaves New Orleans to go to Paris to hunt down Contra. We learned that Gambit and Contra have had a relationship in the past That as guy well. gets around. He sure does. He's a mutant. Uh, and while they're having their little scuffle, uh, Rogue is back with Belladonna, at the bedroom, she's thinking about like, all right, this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take my glove off. I'm going to leech her uh, memories. I'm going to finally learn the truth about Gambit and her. Then she goes, ah, I can't do that. I can't do that. And then Belladonna inexplicably grabs Rogue's wrist and the connection happens. I hate this. <laughs> I hate this because... Because it's a cop-out? It is. We struggle as a reader with... What is Rogue's responsibility for this thing happening? Because she wanted it so badly, and she went so far as to remove the barrier between her and Belladonna. She took her glove off with the intention of taking her memories without her consent. Right, but then the reader gets the benefit of going like, well, Rogue was going to do that, but then she didn't. She got the better of it. But we still want the information, so it's Belladonna's fault. But then, like, so much of Rogue is dealing with the guilt of what happens when she's out of control with her powers. As we go on, her entire arc is about her guilt dealing with Cody. But she never really takes responsibility for what she, how she violated Belladonna. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And that bugs me a lot. Uh-huh. But then she's flooded with Belladonna's memories and she does not try to avoid them. She leans in. She drinks them in. She tries to make Belladonna's history with Gambit her own. 
Which is wrong. Uh, it feels creepy and cheap, like like a, a cheap narrative solution to get us to this point, which we really need to get to. It reminds me of that Simpsons thing where like uh, Homer is like, Okay, Pie. Yeah. I'm just gonna go like um 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 and if if I end up eating you, it's your own fault. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Belladonna's to blame for Rogue's uh hurt Fifi's because she is uh, a whole rush of memories flood Rogue's brain and she witnesses the true love that Gambit and Belladonna had before her, and it breaks her heart. She falls off the bed. She she curls into a little ball and she's just she's just flowing tears. And she does in that moment say, "Oh Lord, what, what have, have I, I done? done?" Yeah, yeah. But yeah. then after that, we just see her from that point on just being completely not present and just losing herself in Belladonna's memories. Yeah, yeah. In the final issue of the miniseries, Gambit gets back from Paris. He's betrayed both Kandra and the Thieves Guild. Everyone's mad at him. But he has the elixir. He's going to give it to Belladonna, but it, it's tricky. He has to like mix like it perfectly. Mixing, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, you would think that uh, a guy who's been around so much alcohol would be a great mixologist, but it's he's having trouble. And eventually, how she ends up taking the elixir just showed that he didn't need to be so precious after yeah, yeah, all. Yeah, because he breaks it, and he he doesn't um, break it. Or it's broken. It's so he's about to give it to Belladonna. Belladonna and Rogue is like, hey, Gambit, I, I gotta thing. tell you a thing that I did. It's bad. Yeah, but he but doesn't deal, he can't deal with he it. He doesn't even hear her. She says to him, it's because I love you. And it's like, it's like his ears were plugged. He's like, I'm concentrating and I need you to be quiet right now. So she was ready in that moment to tell him that she loved him. But it was kind of as an apology for this terrible thing. Not that a happened. way to tell somebody you love them. So it's probably pretty good that he didn't hear. But then Julian bursts in. He drops the vials on the bed. They break. But then he takes the, the sheets, which have soaked up the, the elixir of life, and he just like rings it into her mouth and Belladonna springs to life. But something did go wrong because when she springs to life, she has amnesia and she doesn't remember Gambit at all. He yeah. doesn't, she doesn't remember that they have a history. So he's like, oh, I'm just a good friend um, who just is happy to see that you are okay and I'm going to peace that out. Is the elixir's fault or do you think that's Rogue's fault for having leached her, uh, her, her memories? But that's not how Rogue's, Rogue's powers work. Because that, that's something that Bella... Because Belladonna blames her for the amnesia when we get into Rogue's, Rogue's miniseries. Right. And Rogue is like, well, my powers don't work like that. So that wasn't my fault. That's true. That's true. That's so, true. But I, like, I don't know so whose fault uh, it is. Is it a combo? I say it's a combo. I don't know. She's been in a coma for a long time. Who knows? It's Howard Mackey's fault. But I think that... Like, this kind of absolves Gambit of having to choose between Belladonna and Rogue. Right. So we'll never know what would have happened if Belladonna was A-OK. -okay. His last words to Belladonna are, you live happy, which I think is a really beautiful sentiment. And then, of course, when they're alone, Rogue is like, you still love her, don't you, Remy? And he says, pardon me, always will, Rogue, but you know you know that. But tonight, Remy LeBeau is going out with a bang. 
Long past time, you and me got serious, Cher. So now that his wife is forgets who he is, he's like, okay, well, I'm just gonna fall back Party on road. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he goes in for a kiss, and of course she's like, no, I can't, and she flies away. Typical rogue. And so we're kind of back to square one at the end of the Gambit miniseries, as far as their relationship is concerned. But Gambit does seem to have a change in attitude because here's a quote: "Pah, a mutant thief can't be having loyalties, can't love. Who does this sound like? This sounds like, like rogue." rogue. Yeah. Can't hope to dream of the future. It just isn't meant to be. So now, interesting. If we yeah. think, if we go back to eight dates and the idea of negative talk about a relationship is death of the relationship, it's like a switch being flipped. Well, now Gambit switch has been flipped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. And yeah. then we yeah. end with everything comes full circle, and we end with the legend of Gambit, yeah. who was a dastardly guy who could not be trusted, but he did restore the pact between the thieves and, and the, the assassins. assassins yeah. And now he is like the new tithe collector. Hide your children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 uh. Creole babies. Um, all right. Well, now we got to get into the Rogue miniseries, and we got to do this pretty darn quickly. Um, all right. We're, it's a couple years later. And now we're following their relationship through the eyes of Rogue, theoretically. Uh, the first big, like, radical alteration between the two minis is it's a different artist. I'm a big fan of Lee Weeks. I, I think uh, his work on the Gambit miniseries is solid. He only gets better with age. I love the stuff that Lee Weeks does now. And then the Rogue miniseries is done by Mike Waringo. Uh, and he has his fans. Lots of people like his art. Uh, I'm not one of them. I don't hate it, but coming off of Lee Weeks into this much more cartoony vibe just does not work for me. Like, part of me is suspicious that they would go, well, this is a woman comic, so we need to go with something a little cuter. No, I don't think that's it. I mean, like I said, Mike Waringo, he he had fans. I mean, he, he's, he was definitely a name artist at this time. Um, but it does have that little bit more of a cartoony... Uh, cutesy. Cutesy quality. I, yeah, I'll give you that. But I don't want to harp on it. I do like the opening splash page where Rogue is flying amongst the fighter jets. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a fun little exchange, a fun little bit of action before we get into the heart of the matter where she is about to go on her annual trek to um, meet and converse with the comatose body of Cody the boy she kissed when they were very young, and uh, it's because of her powers he went into that coma. That's right, and this guilt about Cody is a huge source of why she feels like she needs to withdraw from the idea of romantic right. love. We've heard about this situation many times. Uh, it's the driving force in the X-Men 2000 film with Anna Paquin as Rogue, uh, but now it's time for her to make amends with him, uh, if she can, and uh, get on with her life with Gambit, who is now really hot and heavy, trying to nail her down as a girlfriend. Right. After she goes soaring with the Jets and she gets to be alone where she feels like she can fully appreciate her powers because she's not endangering others, she and... Gambit are about to meet at Harry's hideaway in Salem, which seems to be the hangout of all of the ex-students when they're not at the mansion, not at school, not training, whatever. And as she's on her way, 
she's trying to game out how she's going to tell Gambit that she's going off to Mississippi. And she uses the phrase, so much to tell, so much to hide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which plays into the theme of they can never love each other until they get okay with sharing their pasts with each other. And here's like another issue I have with the Rogue miniseries is that it ends up becoming a continuation of what Howard Mackey was doing with Belladonna and what was going down in yeah, New Orleans. Yeah, and, and Rogue has to split narration with Belladonna and what Belladonna is up to, which I think is unfair. Because yeah. Gambit got an entire miniseries to himself. I would have liked everything to have been in Mississippi dealing with Rogue's past trauma. And like that, that seems like what this comic book should have been, but it's not because Mackie is still exploring the mythology of the Thieves Guild, the uh, external. And he's trying to create a timeline. Yes, yes, yes. Because the logical extension is Belladonna, she's got amnesia, and she's mad. So she and Gambit end up at Harry's hideaway after busting some potential rapists and leaving them on the roof of the sheriff's office because you can't have fun without a little adventure first. And so they're sitting at Harry's hideaway and she's telling him about her trip and Gambit is like, past is past, but we can have a future together. Yeah, that's easy for you to say. Belladonna uh, abandoned you. (laughs) Exactly. He's like, my past literally forgot me. (laughs) Rogue is like, my past is my future. I can't escape what I am. There's nothing you or anyone else can do. And that's a little bit like what she said to him back in X-Men number eight, which we talked about in our first Remy and Rogue episode, where, you know, like she's defined by the tragedy that she created or how she perceived to have created it. She literally says that day will be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, And as she's leaving, I think there's a typo in the book. Oh, yeah? Because if you look, Rogue says, I... To be alone, which is not a full thought. And there is actually a blank. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a So it, I yeah. think it's supposed to say, <laughs> which is sad because this is like the crux of their, whole of story. their issue. Yeah. So I think it should say, I need to be alone. What? And he replies, no, you don't. I wonder if that's a trade paperback error or if that is in the original issue as well. I'm going to have to look that up on Comixology. Uh, but nevertheless... She goes to meet up with Cody. Uh, Meanwhile, Belladonna is doing her final tests to become the leader of the Assassin's Guild. And she's kind of going back and forth on whether she wants to team up again with Kandra so that Kandra can, again, be the beneficiary to the The Assassin's Assassin's Guild. Guild. And Kandra knows what happened to her. Right. And right. so Kandra is holding this knowledge over her about what's going on with Gambit and Rogue. And so Belladonna, she needs to have a little revenge also on Rogue. And how did she do that? Snatches Cody. Yeah, she does. Do we want to talk about the conversation between Gambit and Aurora? Clearly Be- you do. Because it parallels the conversation in the Gambit miniseries that Rogue had with Logan. Oh, yeah, it does, yeah. So now Gambit and Aurora are talking, and Rogue is like, I don't want, I don't feel comfortable with Rogue going alone without me. And Aurora gives him the opposite advice, saying, 
You must give her some space to breathe. Let her make her journey home alone. So Logan had said like, okay, he can have this one little trip by himself, but after that you stick by his side. And Aurora is like- Let the bird go if she comes back. She asked you not to come. (laughs) But of course Gambit is like, I don't care. And he follows Rogue anyway and causes her way more grief than if he had stayed home. But the Cajun can't do that. No, he uh, can't. And in issue two, the biggest scene uh, is easily the campfire sequence where Rogue and Gambit are discussing what to do next. Right. They, they've just been threatened, vaguely threatened by Grigri. And once they're settled down together, all Gambit can say is like, wouldn't be finding Scott and Jean doing something like this. Like, We're better than them. Exactly. I think that goes to show like where Scott and Jean's relationship is in this time. Sure. Well, they're, uh, I think this is 1995. I believe they're married now. X-Men number 30 has happened. They are the ex-couple. Uh, but, but maybe they don't get a lot of relaxing by the fire time because they're both so important and involved in the X. I think, I think Gambit, like to me, it's, the X couple is Gene and Scott. They're the best, but they're not as good as us. I think that's really all Gambit's saying there is look how much better we are than the ultimate X couple. Uh, yeah. Um, he's trying to comfort Rogue because she obviously has a lot of concerns. And Gambit is surprised that Bella's involved. Yeah, as are, ours, as, as are we. <laughs> right. And um, Rogue again asks Gambit not to help. And he just straight up says, like, no promises. And Rogue says, like, if I'm ever going to have a shot at a future, if you and me, implication, ever have a shot at a future. So this is her saying, like, even though up until this point, she's been saying there is the Cody, the day of Cody will be the rest of my life. This is her saying, like, you need to get out of my way so that I can resolve this thing. And... Um, he, he can't let he her. refuses and, and so, she knows that so she leaves him in the early a.m flies off into the sky but she also in the back of her mind feels like she got the point across because later she's like she's in the thick of it and she goes whoo thank goodness i don't have gambit to worry about because that cr- promise that he made yeah but, but uh, he goes like i be the thief share and there you go stealing my heart can't be keeping any promises, Petite. If this thing involves you and Belle, it's going to involve me. Yeah, and so he's saying he, that to himself as he's just watched watch her fly her away. Watch her leave. He is sticking to his guns when it comes to disrespecting her word. He's Gambit. Yeah. In the next issue, she goes right to the assassin's house in New Orleans, and Grigri is there and, and delivers Cody's hospital bracelet just as like a we have him he no longer has a bracelet on i guess like if i we like if we take off his bracelet who knows what we're going to do and she faces off with grigri and as she's wandering the halls looking for more assassins to beat up she runs into gambit who she realizes is not gambit but in fact the shapeshifter questa questa then goes and takes the form of Gambit and Cody and then takes the form of Cody and Captain Marvel. Ms. Marvel at this time. Ms. Marvel. So like in doing so, putting before her the image of all of these people she has hurt. She hurts Gambit because 
she cannot love him. She hurt Cody because she did not know she had powers. She hurt Ms. Marvel by stealing her powers. Questa is trying to get to the root of her guilt. Pretty effective uh, shapeshifter move. I think so. Real psychological-like. And Questa is like, it seems like everybody who cares about you, everybody who you come in touch with, you end up hurting. Yeah, reflecting her greatest fear. Right. But then we do get a narrative change from Rogue. And Rogue says, I don't know you or what you are, or who you think you're talking to, but I know better, and I, and I do know that people care about me. So she's finding a source of strength in the X-Men and having this X-Family. Yeah, and when confronted with her fear that she has been suffering this entire time through this shapeshifter, she's able to reject that and grow. Yeah. It's probably the coolest moment in the entire four-issue run of Rogue. Yeah, and I wish that more came of it. Because in the next issue, there's another huge confrontation of self when Kandra does a little wish fulfillment and actually removes Rogue's powers. And Rogue has to grapple with the idea of, is it true what I've been saying, that my life would be better if I did not have powers? But I feel like she doesn't have enough time without powers and enough success without powers to really explore that idea. Because without her powers, Cody would have never happened. But then also the X-Men would have never happened and she would be a stranger to herself. Yeah, that's the catch-22 of uh, most mutants. So we're at the final showdown at this point. Rogue is battling Belladonna, powers free-ish. She's been injured and she doesn't have Ms. Marvel's healing powers. So she's in pain, which is weird to her. But this entire time, she's like, I can feel my powers coming back. Meanwhile, Gambit is in kind of like these, they're like shackles, but they cover his whole hand. And he has something in his hand that he can kinetically charge so he can bust out of his shackles. But he's with Kandra, who's just kind of lording over this whole thing and being an obnoxious external, just being amused by the, the little mortals playing, playing with themselves. And Gambit, once he frees himself, Kandra's like, why are you betraying me all of the time? Because you're a monster. That, that's essentially what he says, <laughs> because you stink. And Kandra is like, you aspire too high for a thief. You were never meant to be noble and good. And I think in this moment, like this was a revelation for me and Gambit's character because I'm like, why is he always insisting on being such trash all of the time, openly hitting on, even like, even as he's following Rogue, he takes a little time to hit on two chicks in a convertible, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. and he tries it's to imply with, with Kandra, ooh, we still, still seem to have this, like, why does he insist on being such a cad all of the time? And I think that in this moment, Kandra has his number of, like, if he became a better man if he decided to do what was noble and good, he would have to aspire to greater things and he would have to live up to his powers. And I think that he uses his kind of um, thiefish 
kind of... Rogue quality. Yeah. It's a persona, like we've been talking about. But it's a persona where, just like uh, Rogue caps her powers... Yeah, yeah, He is capping his powers by insisting on keeping this persona of, you you really can't trust me because deep down inside, I'm a thief, I'm a bad person. Yeah, 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 it's his mask, he's wearing it. Rogue eventually bests Belladonna, powers free ish like they're always returning and growing and she can feel that happening and so she goes to Kandra and she's like let Gambit go and she's like sure I'll let Gambit go and I'll also let Cody go from a very high height this panel shocked me because he's just this poor little limp coma body and he is rocketed through the ceiling of this house flies into the sky like uh, every bone is shattered and Rogue tries to, like, leap to help him, yeah, she but can't. she still doesn't yeah. have her flight powers back. And Kandra makes an offer to take her powers away permanently so that she can live a, what, a normal life, a normal quote, life with Remy. And she makes the point of, like, the boy Cody is going to die anyway. So why should you suffer for this person who's in this situation that will never get better and Rogue declines softly as her powers return. So she is offered, like, the devil's offer of, like, you can have the life that you want. All you have to do is sacrifice this one thing. Yeah, the Faustian bargain. This one person. Mm-hmm. But I think that there could be a more powerful story told about bargaining Rogue out of her powers. I don't think this is the way to do it with, like, holding... Cody from a very high height going like, we're going to drop Cody. I don't like, I think that there is an interesting story of letting rogue live a little while the life that she always wanted. Right. I mean, I think everything gets a little confused because it's also dealing with Gambit's characters Yeah. because it's dealing with the thieves guild and the assassins guild and Kandra. Uh, you know, it's all wrapped up in Belladonna and Gambit's relationship. And I just, I, I would have liked rogue to have made her these own steps. story in her own story, dealing with her own issues and not the Gambit stuff. Yeah. So her powers do return. She zips off and she snags Cody and she tells Cody, like, she, she says, I'm not going to leave him. Not this time, not ever again. And she starts thinking about like, what if I took Cody to professor X or Moira McTaggart, which makes me wonder she should have done that way sooner but I think because she was dealing with the guilt, she couldn't... She couldn't even think about that. She couldn't yeah. even save him because she was so right. preoccupied with hiding this part of herself, yeah. which is so sad. And then um, Tante, Tante Maddie, who we haven't even talked about, informs her that it's too late. Cody is, like, walking off this mortal coil. But she's able to uh, give Rogue access to this afterlife or this... Mid, mid midlife. Uh, what, what's that place called? Purgatory? Is Not really, because it's like transitional. Yeah, I guess it's a mental state. I, I think guess. so. Uh, and so Cody and Rogue have a very convenient conversation so that she can uh, let him go. Yeah, she. he essentially says, like, what, what I think is so sad. Well, he says, life has dealt us both a bad hand. You just got to move on. And do you know what? I don't have any regrets. You don't, Cody. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> Um, and he says out loud, like, 
you put the past where it belongs in the past. So it goes back to what Rogue said at the beginning of this arc of like, past is past. You can't yeah. be dealing with it's what you can't control. It's a strange conversation, right? Because while Cody's body has aged, what we're seeing in this afterlife realm is the child Cody. So the child Cody is saying he has no regrets because he got a kiss. Yeah, you and know? he said that kiss is a memory worth carrying with me wherever I may end up, so, which I think is so sad. If I was rogue, this entire experience would not have put a capper on anything. It would have completely shattered my being. Yeah, and but then, okay, so the vision fades, and as, as it does, she says, thank you, Cody. I won't forget. You were the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, she's saying goodbye to her her childhood sweetheart. She's setting him off on a good note to heaven. I guess. I don't like. I does, guess. does she believe that? I guess we're meant to. She couldn't possibly believe that because, as much as like I cherish my friends when I was eleven years old, like your your eleven year old crush should not be the pinnacle of your yeah. life. Yeah, your high school years are not your best years. Hopefully, like it. Even though this thing with Cody did happen, I think she's right in saying that having her powers, like getting her powers was the best thing that ever happened to her. As With as much grief as they have caused her, they have turned her into a hero and they have turned her into an honorable person. Yeah. And as, as she finds herself overcoming this guilt and being able to grow from it, like, I think that that is the best thing that ever well, happened. I just don't like the way it was the worded. The most important thing about this conversation is it can finally get us beyond the Cody talk, right? She can stop uh, uh, using Cody as this crux for, inter for not interacting with anyone. But it doesn't change the circumstance at all because she still has these powers. Right. And she still w could suck Remy dry by accident. Yep, 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 yep. But now at least the emotional pain is alleviated a little bit. So do you think she truly will be able to move on with Remy at this point? Well, we'll I, have to see. I, th I think we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Yeah, we will. Okay, so how do we relate this all back to Eight Dates and Dr. Gottsman and Abrams? We are going to dive back into the Eight Dates book and we're going to answer one of the open-ended questions from the fun and adventure chapter, keeping in mind the art of listening. Be attentive, be present, ask questions, tune in, witness, avoid judgment, and magnify acceptance. We were supposed to be like discussing those points throughout the book, but Gambit and Rogue are barely talking to each other in this book. I guess um, we had the conversation at Harry's where she was like, don't you dare follow me to Mississippi. He's like, didn't listen, right? Um, and then we had the, the, campfire, the campfire where she's like, don't you dare follow me to Mississippi. And he was like, no promises. And she's like, yeah, kind of promises. And he was like, nay, promises. They have a lot. They have a lot of work to do. It's hard to have a conversation when there's always fighting going on, Lisa. That's true. That's true. So what are these uh, topics here? Okay. So um, I went through and I have, I've picked one of the questions. I accidentally just closed my, my ebook. Okay. Here we go. So the question that we're going to answer both for ourselves and for Rogan Gambit is what does adventure slash play mean to you. So what does adventure slash play mean to you? 
and as far as our relationship is concerned, we always like to have um, a trip on the horizon, whether that's Sundance or Comic-Con or uh, the Chattanooga Film Festival. Like to me, it's like going out of your routine and doing something that uh, is exciting that you both can uh, enjoy and, and partake in. I love you accessing your weeness. Your weenus. My weenus. Your weenus. And it's talking large. about both of us as a unit, because that is one of the signs of a happy couple. But Brad, you're supposed to be talking about for you. Like, you tell me what adventure means to you. Adventure, well, what adventure means to me, Brad Gullickson, uh, the I, uh, the singular pronoun, is going out of routine and doing something cool and new. Um, or, or something that you've planned as a routine adventure, like, like Comic-Con, like I'm saying, you know, Comic-Con, we always do it in July. That's an adventure. That's play. That takes us out of our apartment. That takes us out of our town. That takes us out of our, uh, routine. Yeah. So for me, adventure always comes back to my creativity and taking a risk with my creativity, which relates to us doing Comic-Con, going to Fantastic Fest and doing interviews, to me, that is very adventurous and feeds me creatively. And I find that to be super fun. And play for me, I guess, is Brad and I, we play all of the time. Like, we love to be silly and um, make jokes. And uh, sometimes we've talked about uh, how we like to go out in the world and do bits and, yeah. and be <laughs> silly in public to, to entertain others. <laughs> Um, Mostly ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any differentiation between play and adventure for you? Uh, when you ask me that question, no. I, I, I think of adventure and play as, uh, if not the same thing, relating to each other, uh, running parallel to each other. Uh, to me, adventure involves a little bit more risk. Yeah. I guess like, you know, I, I mean, let's be real. I think most of my day, I, I find some way to play, whether that's through reading comic books, watching movies, uh, you know, hanging out on Twitter. I, I think I, I spend a lot of my day in play mode. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, with Gambit and Rogue, uh, I, I think we hit the nail on the head in talking about Gambit, where play is anywhere outside of New Orleans. Right. And that he is... Uh, as uh, as I tend to be, in play mode 24-7. Whenever he is engaging with something that takes him outside of his own past, he considers that playful and, yeah. and risk-free. He and... treats life like a game. Yeah. Yeah. But I think also a difference between Rogue and Gambit is Gambit likes to be with the people. He wants to be flirting. He wants to be fighting. He wants to be engaging with others, where we see at the beginning of the Rogue miniseries, her idea of play is being completely alone with her powers, flying through the air, um, teasing a jet, you yeah. know, that kind of thing, where for her, isolation is really her happy place. Yeah, it, because it's absent of fear. Yeah. So, Brad, what have you learned from this particular discussion about Rogue and Gambit and Eight Dates that you might want to apply to our relationship? I, I think what's interesting about Rogue and Gambit is this idea of having to shed your past or, or not shed your past, expose your past to your partner. And you can't 
you can't move on until you have let them in in total. Like you have to explode expose all your warts, all your weirdness before you can have a full committed relationship. Uh, I think that is something that we did through a process like Rogan Gambit are doing. That is not something you do on date one or date two or even marriage year one or marriage year three. Uh, I'm always surprised when something new about your past uh, comes up in our life. And, you know, in year 10, we've been married 10 years. We're on year 11. Uh, Going out to Minnesota in December and meeting your family and opening up those photo albums. There were so many photos that I had never seen of you as a kid. And with those photos came a whole bunch of stories. Um, and I, I think I think that's all important. You have to be inquisitive uh, about your loved one and who they were before you. Uh, and it's okay if they're, um, if they're not who they are now. Yeah. Yeah, I think also you have to... S- stop judging yourself. Like a lot of Rogue's issue was she never sought ex help for Cody because of the shame she had for herself. And the fact that she couldn't get past that held her back and held her in this state of pain and misery. And I think about her getting ready to tell Gambit. I'm going to Mississippi to see Cody and her telling herself so much to tell, so much to hide. Mm. Because she's afraid that Gambit is going to judge her as she had judged herself. Mm. And one of the skills of listening is magnifying acceptance. So like she needs to accept Gambit for who he is and that he is a separate person from her. But also another one of the, the art of listening is avoiding judgment. Hard to do. Which is hard to do, but like she had judged Gambit as to be the kind of person to admonish her for something that she, that happened to her when she was 12 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, this journey we've taken with Rogan Gambit from the Jim Lee issues. Uh, I guess the Jim Lee, Andy Kubert, uh, Fabian Nietzsche issues. Because you look at X-Men number 24, as we talked about in our first episode, uh, like that brought them to a place where they can say like, hey, maybe there is something here beyond just flirtations. And maybe I'm not the person whom you have judged me to be. Yeah. Gambit saying, like, I am capable of having a non-physical relationship. Yeah. That was a revelation to her. And the Mackie Minis have put their past all out on the table, and they said, okay, here I am. Do you still want this? For both of them. And to me, I just wonder if this actually changed their situation at all. Because Gambit kind of was absolved of his past by Belladonna having amnesia and then deciding to be a villain. And Cody absolves Rogue of her past by saying, hey, that was the best time of my life. I don't regret anything. I'm ready to walk off this mortal coil. Bye. Does any of that actually change the situation of Gambit? Is he the type 
type of person to choose Rogue above everybody else and above all others. Rogue still has her powers. Can she get over... Can she allow Gambit to consent to well, um, subjugating himself we're to We're going to have to talk about that next week because something does have to happen to Rogue's powers for them to truly get together. Uh, and as we saw when we talked about the James Asmus issue when we were in uh, recording that episode in um, uh, the Salt Lake City Airport, no, the Denver Airport, you know, there's still uh, peaks and valleys to this relationship. It is not smooth sailing going forward. It hasn't been smooth sailing Ever. yet. Yeah. And part of myself finds finds me getting frustrated of it always coming back to the same issues. Well, They're I just... think we're going to be able to finally move beyond that uh, after this point, it, it, certainly in our conversation next week. But we, we talk about how like, oh, well, that's comics. Like you can't have Peter Parker without him feeling guilty about Uncle Ben. You can't have Rogue without her worrying about Cody. But like I, as a person, still have some of the issues I had when I was 12. Sure. There are parts of myself that I can't get over and will be, I guess, my crux for the rest of my life, maybe. Who oh, knows? well, it's, it's the, you know, life is, um, life is, uh, pro, you know, constant education. Yeah. You know, you're, you're constantly evolving. You, you know, you're but, not but, part, but what I'm saying is that. It's not that different than, you're, you're saying the status quo that, reset is not that different than your own life yes yeah, yeah. I, that that i do have the same insecurities that i had when i was 11 years old so what is it brad what are we reading next week we're getting to the good stuff now one of the big reasons we wanted to cover rogue and remy for cbcc was so that we could finally get into the kelly thompson comics Woot. we're going to finish our conversation on these characters talking exclusively about them through the lens of thompson so next week, we're going to read her first five-issue series, appropriately titled Rogan Gambrit. And then the week after that, we're going to read both of her arcs of Mr. and Mrs. X. Spoilers, Rogue and Remy get married. Oh, somebody's getting married. So we have two more episodes of Rogue and Remy left. Oh, I'm so excited. So much content. We've been talking about Rogue and Remy forever. I know. I'm actually a little scared to stop talking about Rogue and Remy because these episodes have been some of our most popular episodes so far. Will we retain the Remy squad out there? Please don't leave us when we move on to another couple. Ooh. Don't get defensive, Brad. Who knows what the future holds? But for now, it's time to end this episode. So, Brad, where yes. can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. You can follow the podcast at CBCC Podcast. Uh, don't forget, at the end of this week, we are going to be on the Adventures in Poor Taste website with our article discussing Emma Frost and Jean Grey. Go seek out that article and tell us why we're so right about them. Lisa. Yes? Where can our listeners find you online? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast, by subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes. And hey, while you're on iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars? It really warms our heart and helps the pod. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.